Hello, and welcome back to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. On today's episode, you'll hear Peter Willis and me, Seth Schultz, discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest 11th round of weekly interviews. With the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations involved in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Peter. Welcome back. Hello, Seth, my old buddy who I've never met. (laughs) It is kind of strange that we've actually never met in person, isn't it? Uh, We talk to each other every week and sometimes in between and we've never met. It's very weird, but um, delightful to be back in conversation with you. Likewise. And, and someday, you know, in the near future, hopefully, um, we, can, we can have one of these chats over a, a, a pint of beer. That would be wonderful. It will be wonderful. Or in your case, you know, maybe I'll just have to come to, uh, to South Africa and Cape Town and, and have one of those delicious bottles of wine that you guys have there. Oh, now yes, we're talking. definitely. So in the meantime, but before that uh, gets to happen, tell me, uh, tell me about last week's conversations and how they've been going and what's on your mind this week. Yes. Um, what I just want to preface um, what I want us to talk about with just a, an observation that came to me a couple of days ago, um, reflecting on this project that we've been running together for the last three and a half months. And these podcasts that we do together, which is that the knowledge that we're going after and with our 12 participants begins in a conversation, these half hour conversations that I have on Zoom with these 12 people every week. It feels very personal and conversational. And then I don't know what, I, I don't think the listeners have been introduced to how we, what, we, what happens next. But what happens is that that recorded converse, Zoom conversation gets transcribed by a very capable company in the States who turn it around in no, in no time and send it back. And then I have two brilliant analysts working with me here in Cape Town who go through the transcript, pulling out the the relevant, interesting bits. And there are lots of them. I say, be generous, pull lots out. And then I read through that. And team members in London also read through these extracts from the transcripts. And then we have a discussion, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it down to these nuggets of information, which we share on on the website or in um, weekly summaries with our participants. So what I've described so far is a movement from a a very informal, intense conversation down to just little parcels of words that we think distill useful and interesting meaning out of those conversations. And then what you and I are doing is returning that into the realm of conversation. For me, the the project would be so much the less interesting if all we were doing were producing bullet points of you know, inverted commas, learnings and lessons out of these conversations. So I just want to say why I find these conversations sort of close the loop in a very real sense, because we go back into this very special thing that is conversation. Sorry, Seth, that was just, I had to get that off my chest. No, it's, I'm really glad you did, Peter, because I I think you're right. I think we, you know, in the beginning of all of this, how many weeks ago, over 11, I guess, we kind of described to the listeners in that first episode, what the project was, how we were doing it, but at a high level. And I don't think we have ever explained all the work that's going on behind the scenes with regard to the individual interviews. And then, as you said, kind of the analysis, the process and the distillation, it is very unique. And, and then, yeah, to your point, returning it back to a conversation that is easy to, easy to relate to and to understand. 
in a, in a different format and not, as you said, reading bullets. So no, thanks for taking a, maybe a, a pause and, and providing that, that overview for all the work that's going on in the background and, and what this is all yielding. And I should also mention that uh, when we're done with this whole project, which is going to be another three, three weeks or so, um, we're going to be working together with a team that you mentioned at Resilient Shift and putting together all of this information into a report. So if that those that do want to kind of see something and read, you know, read it instead of listen to it, we will be doing that as well. In the journey of closing the loop, tell me what's on your mind this week that, um, that you've heard. The, the big sort of chunky idea that I want to explore with you that came up in so many different ways in the last week of conversations is around our blind spots, institutional blind spots, personal blind spots, and how they can quite critically interfere with what's needed in uh, leading in a crisis. But I want to start by talking just briefly about one or two things that came up around particularly the corporate executives that I'm talking to. Just a simple question like sort of what's happening in your business? How is the business side of your your daily work going? And a couple of points emerged there. One from Peter Chamley in Arab, Australasia, talking about this very interesting dynamic that a big chunk, uh, roughly half of their client base is public sector. And because of the urgent need to stimulate economies all around Southeast Asia, I mean, it's a global phenomenon, they're finding that their public sector clients, while their private sector clients are on the whole saying, whoa, um, just wait and see, hold on, hold on. The public sector clients are coming to them saying, okay, can we do this really quickly? Oh, and by the way, that thing that we were talking to you about for doing next year, can we do it this year? And so on. So they're saying, oh, yes, 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 because of course you would say yes, 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 as a big consulting engineering company, you never turn down business unless you really have to. But they're really worried that they're getting all next year's work to do this year, which places a a real question mark over whether the the market of all their sort of subsidiary suppliers and, and so on can actually cope with this sudden compacting of business and work into the remaining months of this year. And then they're staring at what's sort of an emptying out order book for next year. So I just thought that was an interesting one to flag for coming months. And then all of the business people I talked to have at one point or another in the last couple of weeks talked about managing cash. And they talk about it in a sort of offhand way as so it's just sort of something that they do. But when I've asked them, what does that really mean? Because it sounds very simple. It's like a little shopkeeper on a corner shop who sort of cashes up at the end of the day. <laughs> But of course, what it really is coming down to now, particularly, is um, letting people go and downsizing particular divisions that have been badly hit because the sector that they were working with has ground to a halt. And I had some interesting conversations about the, um, the impact this is having on teams where people know that jobs are going to be shed or are being shed and how it's the thing they all least enjoy doing as senior executives. But they all said that, look, you know, it's something that you learn to cope with. And interestingly, two of them, Tom Lewis at WSP in the States and Peter Chamley again in Australasia, were saying how actually there is a bright side to it in that organizationally, particularly in busy times, you take on new team members in order to cope with a a rush of work. 
And of course, some people work out brilliantly and others don't. So actually, these times are a really good opportunity to trim away people who sooner or later you're going to have to part company with because they simply weren't working out. And I thought that's a useful thing to bear in mind in amongst the what's generally perceived as just bad news, which is downsizing your teams. Yeah, no, indeed. And a couple of interesting things that jumped to mind listening to that. I mean, yeah, it is it is um, happening all over the world, and and there's been some bigger and and um, more visible examples of this. And earlier on, like when big startup companies like Bird had to lay off a third of their employees, but increasingly companies small and and large around the world are are having to look at uh, redundancies, layoffs, furloughs, etc. And I think the kind of the points that you're raising with from Tom and Peter. No, very accurate. These things happen all the time and they happen regularly. They're not easy to do. They're never easy to do. I think the one difference here, though, is that while that is a normal cycle of businesses, it is unnormal that businesses around the world all do it at the same time. That is unprecedented. And that is creating some of this challenge. So I think some of the business community leaders that I'm talking to, they're looking at this as a, we've done this before. We have to do this again. It's going to be okay. It's not as simple as that for some of the employees who are getting laid off in the millions, literally, with other people all over the world because the the glut then of talent and people out of work is is huge. And then finding those jobs again is going to be that much more difficult. So it is really challenging. One of the things that jumps to mind, I was talking to um I was talking to a, a friend of mine, um, a guy by the name of John Matthews, who, who runs the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. And we were talking about this, and I was struck by something he had written recently, talking about actually pruning and kind of the husbandry of trees, um, particularly fruit trees. It is um, both an art and a science. And, you know, some trees need pruning, some don't. And the ones that do it at actually by cutting branches and pruning that tree, it helps that tree grow back. It grows back stronger and better than it was before. But you have to have a very trained and experienced eye to understand that tree's position in the yard, the position to the other trees, where it is in terms of the path of the sunlight and what the load of the balance of the branches are for bearing fruit. So that's where the art and the science comes in. And a very skilled person can prune that tree. And the next year, that tree will produce more fruit than it did before. An untrained hand can ruin that tree and basically kill it. And it's an interesting analogy now because I think what the world is trying to grapple with is, okay, this is, we, you know, in the business community, as you were saying, we've dealt with this before. We need to do it again. And it's difficult, but the difference is, is I think a lot of companies now are looking at this is the moment where we need to transform ourselves into the 21st century. We weren't prepared. We weren't quite organized or structured, right? We didn't have the right goals or objectives in place. And along with this pairing back, along with this pruning, we actually are repositioning ourselves, our staff, our organizations, and our mission in what we believe will be the necessary pathway for the 21st century. So it's a really interesting I think conversation analogy, but also very hard, depending on who you are in dealing with this and trying to find your place in it. I think this question of preparing your organization for a a very different future is one that I want to explore in the next two weeks of conversations, because I don't think it's actually 
very easy at all for these organizational leaders to see into the future. There are certain things which, you know, the whole working from home, I think we've all agreed that that's, that's now on the table and has to be reckoned with. But the big uncertainty is the recovery of the economy. All the signals I'm getting are that this is going to be much slower and the cut is going to be much deeper than anybody really wants to acknowledge. And so planning, sort of repurposing your organization for that, I think is quite challenging, but it's a question I'll, I will certainly ask. And then the, the other thought I had is that it suddenly struck me that, of course, I'm talking to all 12 of the people I'm talking to are salaried, reliably in work, running organizations rather than being fired from them or let go from them. And so I'm getting that bias in the conversations I'm having and that you're describing the millions of people who are on the other side of that fence. And their world would require a completely different set of research conversations and podcasts, no doubt. That's right. And how to kind of handle it or, or deal with it or what that looks like. But no, I, I'm, I'm glad you're delving into that in the weeks to come. And, and trying to bottom out what they're what they are looking at and and trying to deal with. And again, it's interesting, and we'll see if this echoes in some of the conversations you have, but a lot of the organizations we've been talking to kind of moving themselves forward into the future, they're trying to manage, how do you manage a tremendous amount of uncertainty with regards to climate change, the economic impact that this is having, jobs creation, cash flows, and a lot of what they're doing is they're getting a lot more invested in their own supply chains. So before they might not know or be directly involved. Now, in order to ensure continuity of, of business, we're seeing organizations and the supply chains link up with each other. Let's work with each other. Let's know about each other. Let's support each other to ensure that the vitality of what we're doing is understood and, and interconnected. So there's some really interesting different ways with which businesses and the global supply chains are connecting to each other, as well as businesses and countries or governments in trying to figure this all out. Interesting to see how that plays out and uh, come in conversations. I think there might even be some, some insights that you have on this from what you were saying at the top of our conversation uh, around institutional blind spots. What do you know? What do you not know? And what you don't know is emerging. What do you do about it? Over to you. What, what's cooking on this front? In a way, all the insights that I want to share with you um, can be framed as answers to this question, which I think burns brightly in the forefront of the mind of all of these people I'm talking to every week, who are all responsible and responsive decision makers faced with this particular crisis. And that question is, how to become, how do I become fully effective in this situation, never mind the sort of the meta situation of the pandemic, but the thing that I've, that's now suddenly surfaced that I have to deal with, how can I be most effective most quickly so as I can put out this fire, if you like? And what emerges from these various different stories that I, I gleaned over the week was that either they feel that they have blind spots or they feel they're at the mercy of some other person or institution's blind spots, which get in the way of being really effective when faced with a crisis. So for example, let's go to Craig Kesson in the city of Cape Town, the chief resilience officer there. And he's got a very good working relationship with the provincial government that's also headquartered in the same city, but runs a much larger province and so on. And they have 
health responsibility, and he's the guy who the city have asked to to run their COVID nineteen response. So there, he has to work very closely with these people. But he basically had went through this process of accepting a strategy and going along with a strategy that they put forward about six to eight weeks ago as the hotspot strategy was what it was called. But gradually, he and his team realized that it's simply because of the way the numbers were going and the way testing was getting delayed, the results were too slow, that that hotspot strategy just couldn't be made to work. So they came up with a, a revised strategy using some clever ways of managing and displaying data that they were collecting in order to be much more quickly responsive when there were outbreaks around the city. And he put this in a presentation to the provincial cabinet. And he said, to me, so I thought this was going to be a real bombshell. And actually, there was total silence. And they just sort of shuffled their papers and said, right, on to the next item. Two or three weeks later, which was last week when I spoke to him, they've now, in a meeting, basically told him that they want to do this new strategy. And he was sitting there thinking, but that's my strategy. That's the one I <laughs> gave you. But he said, this happens all the time. Uh, not all the time. He says oh, he's got a very good relationship with him, but it, it reminds him of other occasions where when a lower order of government, namely city, puts something innovative to a higher level like state or province or, or federal, national, the first response is almost always going to be, what, sorry? Um, now, moving right along, simply because if it's not made in, at our level, it's not worth anything. And he interestingly told me, because I asked him to explain a little bit about how he came to be doing this work, what was his sort of story, his career in a way. And he told me that he started off after university being fascinated doing postgraduate studies in politics and governance and thinking that he would go into national or even international governance. That was his sort of aspiration. And then for various reasons, he was asked to do a short-term job um, helping a political party to analyze how to do a how to sort of present their strategy for a local government election, city elections. And he got really fascinated and realized that actually at the city level and municipal level is where all the real action is. And so gradually he became enamored of and started to um, work permanently in city government. But because of that, he now owns the prejudice. It belongs to those who see city government as a rather grubby you know, as he put it, you know, collecting the dustbins, right? for goodness sake, what kind of policy can you possibly have that's interesting if your job is to collect the dustbins? That's too funny. I have to, you know, embarrassingly say I, I that resonates with me. I started off my career as a, as a consultant and, and most of my clients were for the public sector here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, cities, states and region and national government, regional government you end up getting this approach like, you know, we're really hot and we know what we're doing and everybody's hiring us to help find their solutions and their, solve their problems. And, and governments are kind of places where people go to punch a clock and to check out and not be very ambitious. And then, you know, the last 12 years, I've worked with cities all over the world and boy, is that notion dispelled. I mean, um, it's my belief that, that cities and municipal governments are one of the most creative and inventive environments and exciting because as exactly as you said, they are where the action is. It is where society is being formed. It is where the solutions are, the problems are being identified and the solutions are being addressed in real time. And it's an incredibly exciting space. And it's still, it's still, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but still the vast majority of people do, I think, still misunderstand 
what city governments do, how they do it, why they do it. But I'm, I'm glad there's people out there like, like Craig who made a career out of it, but also, you know, are so self-aware. Yeah, we, I didn't get immediate more people fired up about local government and, and getting involved. But great story. I mean, really, really, uh, yeah, really great story. And I think that particular story is an exemplar of a much wider human problem particularly manifesting in organizations in our work, whether we're public or private sector, which is that we tend to assume that some types of work and some parts of the institution or parts of the hierarchy are intrinsically more important and more clever and smart than others. That can lead to, in, in sort of mild peacetime, when, problem, when the stakes are low, that doesn't really matter. And it can be the subject of jokes and, you know, gossip and ribbing and competitive stuff within an organization. And it really doesn't matter. But in a crisis, it becomes critically important that you are not perceiving certain voices and certain parts of an organization as having mission critical information, knowledge, skills, etc. The story of his is, to me, is a, is a sort of iconic thing because I would want to sit down with those provincial leaders and say, how, how do you feel when national government does that to you? Well, then that's what you're doing. Everybody's susceptible to this. No, the, the point that you're making about what you do in peacetime and making sure that doesn't bleed over to times of crisis and that the low-level stereotypes or inherent biases that we have that aren't really, you don't think are a big deal, all of a sudden to the point you're making become a very big deal and you need to make sure that bias doesn't creep in. Uh, And it matters and it goes right back to this analogy over the last three months that we've been having about underlying conditions and and preparation. And, you know, what they say in sports is what you do and, you know, you practice what you want to do in the game. And similarly, if you have bad practices or bad behavior, why you're practicing, that'll carry through to the game. I love this point that you're making. And I'm curious if you've got any more anecdotes similar to the one from Craig, from the the other participants that help highlight maybe some inherent bias or maybe organizational blind spots um, that that have begun to emerge or been recognized three months into this. Yep, no, definitely. I'm just thinking of one where Peter in Australia, we were talking about the sort of the ripple effect now that it's sort of three or four weeks old, the Black Lives Matter protest and how that has sort of echoed through his company in terms of conversations about voice, who's got what voice inside the organization. But he said, I'm a privileged, middle-aged white bloke brought up in a rural part of England. So I haven't got any of this experience. I just, I'm, I start from a very low base of empathic understanding of some of these issues that people are are dealing with. And he talked about it with some very poignant, profound conversations he'd had within his leadership team, some of whom, the members of whom are non-European, non-white, and said, look, you know, you need to understand, I live with this all the time. And it's not in America. This is in Southeast Asia and Australia and so on. And so I thought he he was sort of owning his own blind spot in a way that as a leader, that opens him up to kinds of conversations where you can really move on to change things and sort of making himself vulnerable. And then sort of similar to that in a way, Tom Lewis at WSP was talking about how it had suddenly dawned on him, he was on a panel discussion, and the point that landed really heavily with him was that it is not going to be us 
in our 50s heading up organizations who are going to come up with the answers that are going to transform our sectors, our industries, our economy, and our society. Let's be honest, this is the job of the upcoming, the people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And we have to get out of the way. Now, how do you do that? And one of the ways you do that is by, first of all, acknowledging that you have a blind spot. He used words like, I'm in power. I can yield a lot of influence. And that's nice. Uh, It is nice. People listen to you. They defer to you. And he's saying, I'm actually now committing that for the remaining sort of 10, maybe 15 years max of my professional career, I'm going to set aside deliberately more and more time to invite younger people to come in and take the baton from me, and I'll help them do that and so on. And I thought that was quite powerful because, again, he's sort of accepting the vulnerability of prejudice and professional arrogance that goes with experience and, and a leadership role. Yeah, it exhibits a lot, of, um, a lot of positional awareness. It does, yeah. And then if we go to Alex, the chief resilience officer in Oak, California, she was reflecting on how the, the sort of senior, now she's in the city level and it's the county that has the responsibility for much of the health work that goes on in her city. And they were, and then there's sort of the federal level and so on. And she was reflecting on how they had set a policy early on, which she and a handful of others in the city realized was going to focus too much of the city and the the state's health resources, including testing and um, clinical um, support, on people who were probably middle to less likely to get the virus and be really ill. But they were the easy ones to reach and to get the volume. And she said, we should have spoken up, but we knew that our voice being closer to the poorer parts of Oakland, which is where she sort of specialized, we realized that our voice probably wouldn't carry very much, A, because we're the city, and B, because I'm relatively new, and C, because we're, we're speaking for um, poorest parts of Oakland. And now, months later, the state and, and county levels have realized they've actually missed this huge chunk of the population who are actually the ones who are getting the worst effects from the virus. And she's sort of owning the fact that she bought into the blind spot and shouldn't have done that. So I, I thought that was quite, quite telling. No, it is. And I, I just love the, it's so rich to hear these really specific rich, colorful examples that you're able to bring every week from these people who are dealing with this. So, you know, when you and I coming back to the kind of you explaining this process at the top of this podcast on how we're bringing it back to a conversation, but it's not just a high level conversation. You're able to punctuate it with these real life experiences that happened, you know, last week and the last couple of months. And it just makes the conversation so much clearer and these issues so much more real. Um, it's just really, it's really fun. I really enjoy these, Peter. And we're already at the uh, the end of our time here. I, I could have continued listening to you <laughs> in these examples for another hour. But um, thanks again. Uh, I can't wait for next week. And um, as usual, thanks a ton. It's an absolute pleasure, Seth. I look forward to our next conversation very much. Have a great week yourself. Cheers, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for round 11. We've got only three more of these weekly insight episodes to go. I can't believe the project's almost over. 
If you would like to hear what we distilled in rounds one through 10, please check out our project page and podcast stream and listen to our previous episodes with weekly insights. Links are in the episode notes. We'd also be keen to hear your thoughts on topics we can cover in future episodes. Please use the feedback form on our project page to send in your suggestions. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of the Resilience Shift. See you next week.